Good, good afternoon, everyone. This doesn't feel safe. Just gonna slide that back under there. Just looking for some water. If someone could, uh, while I'm uh, talking, Andrew, could you grab me a water, please? It's a little, little toasty. It's good though. It's summer. So thanks for uh, allowing me to come back and be able to worship with and uh, minister alongside uh, each of you here uh, this uh, fine afternoon. Uh, a lot going on. Hopefully uh, you can hear me over the roar of the lake, uh, which is kind of cool. Um, and if, you know, you get kind of tired or whatever, go I'll watch a couple laps, come back in. That'll be fine. You know, whatever you, whatever you need to do, that's, uh, that's no problem at all. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever purchased something in your life and maybe, thank you, were maybe a bit skeptical about the purchase. Uh, for example, maybe you, uh, um, you know, purchased a product that you saw in an infomercial. I don't know how many of you are QVC or infomercial watching kind of people, uh, but uh, maybe you bought something and thought, oh, this is not that great or you thought it was great and turned out it wasn't. You know, the first time I remember as a kid in um, junior high or high school, I can't remember. I got a little bit of feedback uh, up here, just a slight ring, she's working on it. So let's see how long I can stretch this story while she's working out the sound. I remember one of my brothers introduced me to a product called Armorall, and I was amazed at the results Spray this on, on just about anything, and it became super bright, super shiny, and sometimes super slick. You'd fall right on, onto your rear end, you know, because it would just shine something up so uh, amazingly, you know. But uh, you, once you saw the amazing results from it, um, you know, it, it, it's true. It restores everything, right? Like literally, as the, the, uh, as the bottle says, when I got to be older and as an adult, I was amazed with a product called the Magic Eraser. It is magic. I mean, it truly is, right? Like, I use it on everything. Uh, you can use it to uh, clean a mess that you made on the stove, right? I mean, it, it's amazing what I do. I use it on the boat to clear up stains that I cannot get off of the side of the boat. I can use it on anything. It's just an... Um, and you see these amazing results right before your eyes, right? And it's, it's uh, something that you're quick to share. We're quick to tell people about uh, all these different things. And, and what's more is we tend to go back to the person who first shared it with us and say, hey, thank you so much for telling me about this amazing new fill-in-the-blank, whatever it is. And you go back and you're excited to tell them all, all about it because it's just like it's changed your life, Right? I'm waiting for that hair product to come in for me someday that's just going to make my life amazing, right, and change my life. Uh, but uh, may maybe not. Maybe I'm not going to invest in that. You know, when it comes for us in the life of a local church, as we see different things that happen around us and things that occur, it is important for us to make sure that we call out those amazing results and the amazing things we see as a demonstration of God's grace in the local church. You know, last week I started to talk through this letter of 1 Thessalonians. So if you have your Bible with you this afternoon, we're going to take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. 
And what we're talking about here are some of the practices and some of the realities of what a healthy church looks like. What are some healthy church practices? What are some of the things that we observe and see that are happening in the life of a local church? You know, when it comes to God's grace in our lives, how quick are we to share the amazing results and work we see of God's grace? I mean, we'll share the most mundane things of life that just amaze us. And that's fine. Like, that's fine. But are we quick to share the amazing work of God's grace in our lives? How quick are we to thank God for the evidence of grace that we see in other people's lives? You know, this letter that the Apostle Paul is writing to the believers at Thessalonica is, it's, it's an interesting one. Obviously, there's a series of instructions and reminders that are going to be given, but this is not how he begins the letter. He begins this letter not so much with instruction, but rather identifies and thanks God for the evidences of grace that he sees in the life and the lives, rather, of the disciples of Christ. There's a book I read some time ago called Humility. And there's a chapter in this book called Humility that says we should identify evidences of grace in the lives of fellow believers. And it was very helpful for me to recognize the benefit that there is to encourage fellow believers, not to try and boost their ego not to try and make them think that there's something inherently special about them, but the recognition that we all need encouragement. We all need someone to encourage us in our walk with God. We all need someone to encourage us in our day-to-day lives because the struggle with sin is real. The struggle in the world in which we find ourselves is real. And when we are displaying and evidencing God's grace in our lives. And when someone comes along to encourage us in our walk, it really does give us that boost to, to press on. Even Proverbs says, a word spoken in due season. How good is it? We see God's work in the lives of fellow believers And when we see this and when we call it out, it actually prevents us from being proud. Because we're identifying that it is the work of God's grace that has changed them, not something inherent within themselves. So this afternoon, from 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 2 through 5, I want us to see the disciples thank God for evidences of grace. Disciples thank God for evidences of grace. And we'll see this in verses 2 through 5. So follow along with me as I read 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 2 through 5. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So the main thought, the main truth that is trying to be communicated here in these few verses really comes from verse number two. 
And the key statement here is that we give thanks to God always for all of you. So that key statement in the text is then going to be supported, right? It's going to be backed up, and he's going to expand on that thought. So when we're reading through our Bibles, right, and we see a key statement here, what are all, and this is the key statement in verse number two, what are all the pieces that help support that or approve that point, so to speak? And that's really what we're going to take a look at this afternoon. We give thanks to God always for all of you. You know, this is not to be vain or some kind of show of flattery here. The intent, like I mentioned, is to see the evidence of God working in a fellow believer's life. One commentator put it this way, this is not manipulation, but rather genuine praise to encourage believers in their walk. It's interesting that this entire context that I first was really kind of exposed to this thinking was in a book called Humility, right? Because we don't want to create a sense in which we are proud for something that, that we think we have done in our own strength. But even, you know, before the service, I was talking with uh, Garrett a little bit, and the testimony that the church family was here to uh, the town of Belleville and helping support uh, the activities of yesterday. Apparently, a number of volunteers didn't make it, a lot of the folks here were there and helped pitch in. And, and man, praise God for the testimony that you were to be there and help them. Uh, is, is, it a, is, it a, is it a big deal? Yes. I mean, think about the people who are organizing an event like this. This is insanity, right? And to have a group of people come and bail them out and to help with something, this is something we should thank God for. This is an evidence of grace of being willing to work and support and help in a, in a community-type effort. And I think that's fantastic. And we should be encouraged, right? Sure, that's right. It is something to be encouraged about. But this is not something that you have inherently done, right? And let me push back on that a little bit, right? It is something where you're genuinely concerned about the testimony of the cause of Christ in the town. And so the same thing is what we should be thinking of one another. And when we receive this affirmation, right, or this encouragement... In what we're doing, it helps you to press forward. Can you imagine if it's like, oh, and by the way, you weren't there for 10 hours, people. Uh, I got a sunburn. Like, come on, we're out there serving, you know? I mean, can you imagine if someone was trying to press down harder and not encourage it? That would, that would not encourage you to want to keep doing more. And so what, what the text is saying here is, look, we need to be thanking God for the work that he is doing in and through you, right? And that, that's exactly how he starts off this, this letter. Even when we're tired, even when we're feeling hopeless, we should always be looking for ways to encourage one another. And that's how this letter begins. So disciples thank God for evidences of grace. And this is really a demonstration of the work of the gospel. So what does this look like for us as believers? First thing I want us to see this, this afternoon is the way we thank God for this and the way this is displayed is disciples pray for fellow disciples to remain faithful to the gospel. Verse number two. Disciples pray for disciples, fellow disciples, to remain faithful to the gospel. Verse number two. We give thanks to God always for all, all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. They pray continually and constantly. It's not just a momentary thing, right? This is something that's ongoing. 
Now, why is it that do you think they wanted to encourage these believers, that is, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, as they had been there, and then Timothy, of course, went back, you remember from last week, to see kind of what was going on, and and the Apostle Paul's in Athens at the time, writing this letter, saying, look, we're constantly praying for you. Remember, they had to get out of town quickly, and I'm sure that they were concerned about what had happened and what was going on, so they were letting them know and encouraging them, saying, look, we are praying for you constantly. We want you to remain faithful to the gospel. We're giving thanks to God for you. And so we're going to continually pray for you. Because they left in a hurried manner, it's obvious from some of the surrounding texts that we looked at last week that they were concerned. They didn't want Satan to take away the seed that had been planted. They were praying and hoping that the seed of the word of God had taken root and that they would remain faithful. This entire section really also displays how they wanted to remind them of how they tried to live the gospel. And we'll get to that toward the end of our time this morning, this afternoon. So really what we want to do is think about identifying evidences of grace and being an encouragement to one another. And one of the first ways that we can do that is to be praying specifically for fellow believers. Now here's a couple little points of application I want to make along the way. First one is simply this. We need to communicate to others that we're praying for them. That's exactly what this letter is doing. We need to communicate to others that you're praying for them. When we pray for people and we keep praying for them, please let them know from time to time that you're praying for them. Perhaps you have been the recipient of a text message or a note at just the right time where someone was letting you know that they were praying for you. They may have had no idea what was going on in your life at the time. You may have been afraid to communicate what was going on in your life at the time. But God burdened someone else's heart to pray for you, and you sent them a note, and that was an encouragement to them. The way that disciples identify evidences of grace in each other is by praying for each other and by letting them know that you're praying for each other. This is something that, sure, it could become trivial, But I think when we actually take a few moments to pray for one another and we recognize that we are being that conduit of grace to someone else, it encourages fellow believers. Don't just sit around waiting. No one's praying for me. No one's praying for me. Take a few moments and pray for them and then let them know that you're praying for them. And then you know what's going to happen? I get encouraged to pray for that person because they're praying for me. Crazy, right? What's next? Everyone's going to be praying for each other? This is exactly what the healthy church does, is they're praying for one another, and they're communicating that to one another. You know, as well as we believe we may know each other, if our lives are as as big as this building, there's a lot that's going on in people's lives that you have no idea. You may only know as, as much as what's on the size of this pulpit compared to the entire room. There's a lot that people are dealing with. There's a lot that's going on in people's homes and in their marriages and in their workplace and in their community and with their neighbors and with all the things. Could be with their kids. It could be with their parents. It could be with whatever it is. When disciples are praying for fellow disciples constantly and they're mentioning this, it becomes a conduit of grace and we begin to identify evidences of grace in each other because now I'm focused on fellow believers. 
And I'm seeing how God's grace is at work in their lives because I'm starting to pray for them. This is the first step toward moving in that direction. All right, so this is where we pray for one another. We're praying specifically as a part of a church family. We're praying for unity in our diversity as the gospel is at work amongst us. Let me say that again. We're praying for unity in our diversity as the gospel is at work among us. Now, this phrase or this idea is certainly not new with me. It's something that uh, many a different writer, many a different person has written about, and I think it is an incredibly helpful statement. What is it that brings church people together? It's the gospel of God. Sure, we might have affinity of certain things, right? We all might like boating. We all might like golf. We all might like Minecraft, whatever the gaming thing is that you like, right? You might like one of those things, and that may bring a group of people together, and that's fine to have common interests. But the church isn't founded or based on those things. Fine though they may be, it is founded on the gospel of God. And what happens is you have different people from different backgrounds with different life circumstances who are coming together and we need to pray for the evidence of God's grace in our unity on the gospel of God and celebrate the diversity. Not accept compromise, not accept sinful activity. Do not mistake what I'm saying, that when we pray for unity in our diversity, it doesn't mean we accept anything and everything. That's not the point. The point is simply this, that we recognize that there are differences amongst God's people. We pray for those things, and that is exactly how the evidence of God's grace starts to become more real. Listen from Acts chapter 1 as I read. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and James, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So what was going on here? They were praying for unity, and they were committed to prayer for each other and with each other. When you recognize the diversity of the gifts, talents, skills, jobs, workplaces, everything of all these different people, it's astounding. And yet they were all praying together with one accord. They were all praying together, celebrating these different gifts, thanking God for them, and praying for each other. So why do I say to remain faithful to the gospel? If we're to be praying for one another, to remain faithful to the gospel, why do I say that? We're going to get to that in, in, the, in the following points here, because the rest of the text lays that out for us as far as where their faithfulness remained. But I just want to stop and think about this just for another second. As we pray for one another, sometimes we may have the tendency to pray that someone will see something my way. If they would just change and see it my way, then we'd have unity. And you know what they might be thinking? Man, if that guy or that gal would just see it my way, then we'd have unity. That's not, that's not the, the intent here. The intent is for us to focus on the truth of the gospel, to encourage one another and not to allow our differences to become the things that are highlighted. 
but recognize that we have a unity in the gospel of God that is among us. Prayer of this thought is going to be expanded in the following couple of verses here. So, disciples thank God for the evidences of grace. It begins by praying for disciples to remain faithful to the gospel. Verse number three, disciples thank God for disciples who live godly. Disciples thank God for fellow disciples who live godly. Remember, we're talking here about the way believers interact with one another in a local church. Okay, so how do we do this? Disciples thank God for those who live godly. Verse number three, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus. I'm just going to pause here for a second because I don't want us to miss what is commonly known as the triad of the Christian life, right? This is Christian character in person. We see our faith, we see our love, and we see our hope, right? All three of these things are unpacked here in this text. These, these are the active representations of what it means to be a Christian, now, let me be clear. This is not how one becomes a Christian. I don't do certain things in order to become a Christian. Or if I don't do these things, then I'm, you know, somehow going to uh, not uh, be a Christian any longer. But rather, this is the evidence that you have been changed and what it means to be a Christian. It's the clear evidence of a changed life. When someone becomes a new creature in Christ, when someone repents, when someone turns and trusts Christ, they change. Make no mistake, they are not perfect. We will not be perfect in this life, but they are constantly changing. When someone becomes a believer, they are growing and maturing to become more like Christ. And the evidences of that grace, of that changed life, are displayed in these different character traits that we see here. There is this work that is produced by faith in Christ. Your work of Faith. The activity that we're doing is produced because of our faith in Christ. The labor is produced by the love of Christ. And this steadfastness is produced by the hope that we have in Christ. So when it comes to what a healthy church looks like, the faith, the hope, and the love is constantly on display in all the things that we do. When we gather together as a church for worship, when we're engaged in the community like we are, when we're praying for one another, with one another, or helping out in the children's ministries or with the teens, regardless of what it is, all of those things are the evidences of God's grace. And this is when we encourage one another, when we serve one another this way. These are the active representations of what it means to be a true Christian. Their faith was given clear outward manifestation even as the scriptures teach us. Good works are God's gift to man to represent his glory. Let me say that again. Good works are God's gift to man to represent his glory. God did not give us good works so that somehow we could earn favor with him. 
God gave us these good works so that people would see God and give him the glory. That's why when we thank God for the evidences of grace for a good work that someone is doing, it praises God because that is the gift of God for doing those good works. Your labor of love, your work of faith, and the steadfastness of hope is a representation of Christian character and what it looks like for a healthy church. Faith that works through love, Galatians 5 and verse 6. James speaks of faith and love and works, and obviously we understand that we will show our faith by our works. It's demonstrated through those things. So when the gift of salvation has been given, and saving faith has been exercised, the eyes of the heart and of the mind have been opened, Man responds to the work of God through faith and repentance, and there is an enduring reality to that faith. Christ, who is eternal, suffered and died for man's sins so that we might live for eternity. And when our faith and our hope is in the person and work of Christ, that work of faith and that labor of love is driven by that steadfastness of hope of who we are in Christ There's nothing inherently good about Dan. There is something inherently good about the Christ in whom Dan trusts. And that is what gives one hope. And when you see those good things, it's an evidence of God's grace in my life because I'm an idiot. Some days I try to be less of an idiot. Like, how's that work for a sliding scale, right? Maybe I'll be less of that today. Those good things are the evidences of God's grace in my life. And that is how we encourage one another to help us press on. See, God is at work. To whom was this labor and this work directed? The labor and work of the church at Thessalonica was in part driven toward the leadership of the church. It was directed to other believers in other locations such as Philippi and Berea. We'll see this in Lord willing, in future, in future study throughout the letter. The church's love should extend to those outside of the church as well, and they should pray toward that end. So this is not something that's an exclusive club just for the church family. There are things that are unique to the church family, of course, but that love should also extend outside of the church walls. First Thessalonians and verse 8, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Faith, love, and hope. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, I want to just stop here for a moment because this statement is really key and is foundational for what a healthy church looks like when they practice and fulfill these things because it becomes the centerpiece of what allows us to drive forward. Listen, we can come up with all kinds of great programs. I'm not against programs. But that's not what's going to sustain because people will get bored of them or it's not going to give us the numbers that we thought we're going to get. That's not the sustaining power in a church. It will never be a program. The sustaining power in the church is not going to be whether or not I think the guy up front is keeping me awake long enough, although that's always helpful to stay awake long enough, right, to actually hear what's going on. 
The sustaining power in the church is with the body of Christ fulfilling all of these different things that we see throughout the text. Turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 10. I just want to take a moment to pause on this thought here. Because remember, Paul is writing to them saying, look, I'm remembering before our God your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. Hebrews chapter 10, I'm going to read a little bit longer of a passage here because I want to unpack this just a little bit more to make sure we understand the importance of these phrases and how it plays into the life of the church. Hebrews 10, I'm going to start reading in verse number 22. Hebrews 10 and verse 22. And remember, we're looking here for the faith and the love and the hope. All right, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to Love and good works, not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We are to be gathering as a church for the purpose of encouraging one another in faith, hope, and love. These are the evidences of God's grace in our lives that we're to be thanking God for and encouraging one another with. When we see God at work and us fulfilling this work that God has called us to. Stirring each other up for love and good works happens corporately. These are the things that we do when we gather. This is why we sing to encourage one another, to give praise to God. We need to be able to hear one another singing as we're singing. Make a joyful noise, amen? <laughs> Why? Because we're encouraging each other with scriptural and biblical truth. Yes, we have people here who are leading. It's not going to be me leading the, word, the singing time, right? We all know our gifts. Leading us before the throne of God so that we can encourage one another and sing praise to God so that we can be encouraged. Drawing near, stirring up one another to love and good works. If we don't gather together for the purpose of worship, which is for God's glory, then we miss the opportunity to be edifying and encouraging one another. And that's what we're called to do. You're still in Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verse 26 of Hebrews chapter 10. For if we go on sinning deliberately after having received the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. Let me just pause there. Wait, what? You, you were just reading about how we're to be drawing near and holding fast the confession of our hope and considering how to stir one another up toward, toward love and good works. And we don't neglect to meet together because it, it's something that's encouraging to fellow believers. And then he comes out with this strong statement the author does. If we're not doing those things, then we're sinning deliberately? 
That's how important it is for a healthy local church to be engaged in all of these different activities. Identifying the evidences of grace, seeing the faith, hope, and love that is present, and encouraging each other by praying for each other, and singing with each other, and sharing in the faith, hope, and love with one another, so that we see God's work in our midst, in our lives. Those who are God's people cannot ignore the importance of gathering together. Strong warning is given here. So for us as believers, true believers, as we're to be followers of Christ, we are to be following this pattern of faith, hope, and love. Look back at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 now. Disciples thank God for evidences of grace. Disciples pray for fellow disciples to remain faithful to the gospel. Disciples thank God for fellow disciples who live godly because they are demonstrating this faith, this hope, and this love. And I want to encourage us, and let's just think of a couple of points of application here. No one should be guilted into coming to church. I think that is horrible. There's something that I have been taught for many, many years, and that is the reality of what we would call spirit-motivated ministry. Because when the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to motivate and stir up our hearts through the work of faith, through the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope, because what Christ has done, that is enduring. If someone tries to guilt you into doing something... You might do it for a little while, but when that guilt goes away, so will the motivation or the desire to continue in that work. I may feel guilty about eating a certain thing for a certain period of time, but tell you what, come 10 o'clock at night and there's some chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream in the freezer. That guilt is pretty much gone. I'm not afraid to eat it. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. It's good. When it comes to church ministry and we make appeals for different things, we need to be recognizing the evidences of grace where God is at work in the lives of fellow believers and encourage them to be involved and to do the same. Certainly we don't want to miss an opportunity and certainly we want to encourage and stir one another up to love and good works, but let's do it in a way that reflects the gospel of God and the evidence of grace that's there so that it becomes enduring the steadfastness of hope because of what Christ has done. So maybe we should take some time at some point to reflect on our choices about why we're going to church. I gotta go somewhere. This time works, so let's go here. I mean, that's not really a good reason. I know I don't want to go fill in the blank. Ah, my friends go there. I don't want people to think the X, Y, or Z. And we can come up with all kinds of things. None of these are good reasons. Where the word of God is taught, where we are able to encourage one another in faith, hope, and love, and where I am able to be a conduit of God's grace to others, and I am sensing the same work of the Spirit within the assembly, well, then that's where I need to be. Being held accountable to fellow believers and to the shepherds that God has placed over that church family. What we want is a spirit-motivated service and ministry. We want to be so amazed with the grace of God that we see in other people's lives as we share it, as we see it, it becomes something that is attractional 
and I'm driven to it. I want to see the way that God is at work, and it, there's an excitement about that, not in, 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 in programs and all these other things. And like I said, I'm not against that, any of those things. But that's not what's going to sustain. What's going to sustain is ultimately the faith, the hope, and the love. It's when the grace that we have experienced drives us to our labor of love. It's the hope that we have in us, and it gives us the ability to endure. Disciples thank God for evidences of grace. They do so by praying for one another. They recognize godly living when people are following through with this labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope, and the work of faith. Verses 4 and 5, though, thirdly, disciples thank God for the gospel's power to change lives. There's this encouragement here that the Apostle Paul is trying to make for these believers, seeing the cause or the basis or the foundation of their Christian character. Disciples thank God for the gospel's power to change lives. Look at verses 4 and 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So now he's going to say, look, here's the cause of how you're able to identify the evidences of grace. The cause for how you can see godly living. What is the cause for how you're able to understand and fulfill this work of love, this work of faith, this labor of love and the steadfastness of hope? It's rooted in verse number four. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. The character of the gospel of the Thessalonians was received in verse 5, we see. The evidence of the changed life we'll see, Lord willing, next week in verses 6 through 10 in the, in the true gospel. But why, why address the topic of election here? I mean, he's chosen you, right? You can't escape what this, what this text is saying. Why, why address this now? Like, why, why toss this in? The basis of one being a believer is that it is the love of God that has called us, any of us, to salvation. That's really simply what he's saying here. It is the love of God that has called us to salvation. You know, sometimes we want to have a tendency to put ourselves in the driver's seat with a lot of things in life. I had a professor in college many, many years ago who said these two simple statements that really help me understand a little bit more about God's grace and salvation. He said very simply, salvation is all of God. Judgment is all of merit. The things that you want to try and achieve for yourself is only going to result in judgment. But when we recognize, Jonah 2.9, that salvation is of the Lord, it changes your perspective. Now, man is fully responsible for his choices. Make no mistake. We understand, as I mentioned last week, that God created all things. And he created them all good. Man chose to sin. And even though man chose to sin, God in his love sent a redeemer to come. A rescuer. And in doing so, he called us by his love in which man must respond with faith and repentance. When man does so and repentance takes place, 
salvation is seen. And that is fully understood when Christ returns. So as believers, we understand that the basis or for the, 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 the cause for this is the work of God in calling us to salvation. When there is evidence of saving faith, it shows that the love of God is present. One of the things that my wife and I would often say as our kids were growing up and as they were all getting older, and by God's grace, all of them have made a profession of faith, and we see evidences, wait for it, of God's grace in their lives. We see evidences of the fruit of the Spirit, We see evidences and clues that God continues to be at work in their lives, and we praise God for that. We thank God for that. Is there something that they did to cause that? No, it was the love of God. God doing a work in the hearts and lives of believers results in evidences of his grace being seen. Those who are believers should live according to their calling, which is what gives you confidence and assurance. When the Spirit of God does a work and he convicts and you respond to it, be encouraged because this is the evidence of God's grace working in your life. This is what gives us hope. This is the enduring power of the gospel. There's a lot of different aspects of the gospel that are explained here in this this text. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. A lot of the aspects of the gospel, word, power, and Holy Spirit. I want to highlight each one of these real quickly here. First in word, the gospel can be seen or evidenced in action or doing things, right? Right? However, the gospel must be explained. Doing work on mission is fantastic if we are communicating the gospel of God. The word of God must be communicated at some point. I don't know where I'm treading here in terms of territory or not, but I'm going to just kind of put some thoughts out there. Maybe challenge some of our thinking. Maybe I'll get agreement, and maybe this is my last Sunday. Can say anything on your last Sunday, right? Well, that could be today. I think it's fantastic when we serve the community in all kinds of ways. I'm just going to pick one at random, right? Let's say serving in a soup kitchen. Soup kitchen. I think it's fantastic if believers engage in that kind of activity. I really do. That is not the work of the gospel. That is fantastic, benevolent work. Doing those types of things is something that believers ought to do simply out of the love of God for loving your neighbor as yourself. It becomes gospel work when you have communicated the truth of the word of God. It doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen by osmosis. It happens when we communicate that a person must put their faith and trust in Christ alone. It happens when we understand that we are a sinner in need of a savior. And that when one trusts the finished work of Christ, they can come to a saving knowledge of God. Do we do soup kitchens? Sure, that would be fantastic. And, as one author put it, give them the word. Do whatever these things are and give them the word. That is when the church is on mission for the gospel of God. And so as believers, 
We're to be communicating this truth because the scriptures are crystal clear right here. I know that it came to you in word. At some point in our gospel communications, the cross must be brought to bear. This is what gives us confidence and gives us hope. It's a call of repentance toward God, leaving idols, which will come later on in the text, and then, of course, leaving a wicked lifestyle. There's a specific choice. So when the gospel comes, again, according to verse number four, our gospel came to you not only in word, meaning we communicated the very truth of the gospel, but also in power. This is the same word that's used in the gospel of Jesus' miracles, right? A powerful thing that occurred. God's power, not the argumentative power of Paul, Silas, or Timothy. It wasn't in the power of manipulation or in the power of tactics, right? It wasn't the power of a program. It was the power of God. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power. And then finally, it says, the gospel came to you with the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's not, please, let's not be afraid of the Spirit. Full disclosure here, sometimes I'm afraid of the Spirit. I'm not, but I am. I'm afraid when I start hearing people afraid, risk averse maybe, just like, oh, what are you saying here? I think sometimes we are a little bit cautious because we don't want to be connected with some other kind of a false teaching movement, for example. Uh, but, But let's not diminish the work of the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I am giving this to you. Another comforter. So what is it that the Spirit of God does? Let's not be afraid of it. The Spirit is sent to call, to convict, to enlighten, to transform, to assure, to comfort. This is not the work of a con man. This is the work of the Spirit of God to convince us of things. The work of the Spirit is the guarantor of truth. And when we communicate God's word, which has the power to the work, which has the power to work, we ask for the Spirit to confirm and to convict. John 16 is rather clear. And when He, that is the Spirit, has come, He will reprove, convict, and convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The text goes on to further explain that the Spirit of God is first going to convict of sin. Convict of the fact that we have violated a holy God. This is what the Spirit does. Not only does he convict of sin, but he convicts of righteousness. What does that mean? It means that we recognize that we are unable to stand before perfect before a holy God. Basically, it's a convincing that we need Jesus Christ. The Spirit is going to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's going to convict of the fact that unless we turn from our sin, we will be separated from, for all eternity from God in a place called hell. This full conviction that was happening here was a deep persuasion on the part of those who were communicating the truth. Look at the end of verse number, verse number 5, middle of verse number 5. Our gospel came to you in word, power, and the Holy Spirit with full conviction. There was a deep persuasion. Part of what they had experienced in the gospel had given them conviction. 
because of what they had seen in the lives of the other believers, it gave them conviction. Just like when you're convinced of a new product that you see, you can't wait to tell someone how amazing the magic eraser is. You are so amazed at the work of grace that you're seeing in the lives of fellow believers at your church that you're sharing that with other people. You're doing so with full conviction when you communicate the word of God and you communicate it with the same intensity and the power of God, praying that the spirit of God will use the word to convict men of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. You can try and convince, you can try and manipulate all you want. But that's not going to last. It's not going to work. But rather, when we communicate the gospel of God, the very word of God, we pray for the spirit to work. We pray for the power of God to change hearts. We continue to see this work going on and on and on. So when disciples in a local assembly gather together, when they meet with one another, when they see one another, they are thanking God for the evidences of grace. They're doing this by praying for each other that they would continue with full conviction to see the power of God through the word of God in their faith, hope, and love. And each of these things become a demonstration to a lost and dying world that's in dire need of seeing the gospel of God. Disciples thank God for the gospel's power to change lives. They communicate it, they live it, and they pray for one another to continue in it. Let's close with a word of prayer. God, thank you so much for these truths from your word. Lord, we recognize that it's easy for us to try and create some kind of a guilt-motivated ministry mindset or some way for us to come up with some kind of a means to help prove our own worth. But God, I pray that you would help us to look for the evidences of grace in each other's lives, that we might be encouraged to remain steadfast and to press forward. God, I pray for the believers gathered together here at Redemption this, this afternoon, that you would help each of us to look for those evidences of grace, to encourage one another, that we might remain steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name.